Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we are back with part two of our series on the beaver. Yeah, in the last episode, we hopefully gave you a newfound, improved, and reinvigorated appreciation for the common beaver. Uh, the world's second largest living rodent and a tireless ecosystem engineer. That's right. Last time we focused mainly on the, the real-life biology, behavior, and ecological role of the beaver. So if you haven't listened to part one, you should probably go back and check that one out first. I think that will give you a richer understanding of the stuff we're going to be talking about today. But for a very brief recap... Uh, yeah, beavers are are large. They're the second largest extant rodent after the capybara. Uh, beavers have iron in their teeth, perfect for chewing through wood to cut down trees and for gnawing off pieces of vegetation. Beavers, of course, eat vegetation. Uh, they're, they're herbivores and their diet includes foliage, but also uh, the bark and the outer layers of soft wood from tree branches and trunks. Beavers, of course, build amazing structures. They dam waterways to change the characteristics of flowing waterways to sort of like uh, create ponds and, and redirect water flow and so forth to, to deepen water channels. And they also build these essentially impenetrable lodges with underwater entrances and exits for their own housing and protection. And these constructions also allow underwater storage of caches of vegetation to provide food throughout the winter. And then finally, we discussed several studies of what might or might not be considered tool use in beavers. This was a lot of fun, including we had a long digression on the so-called stick displays, where <laughs> some beavers, in particular populations, this is not common to all beavers of either of the extant species, uh, but this was documented among some Eurasian beavers in Norway. They would pick up 
up a stick and they would shake it, shake it up and down while holding it in the mouth and forepaws. Uh, the researchers believed this was to demonstrate strength in order to drive away potential antagonists, uh, maybe uh, other beavers encroaching onto their territory. And of course, we ended up highlighting the the most impressive of the stick-shaking beavers, a, a beautiful, powerful warrior of the wasteland named Birgit. Yes, her name, I had to look this up, her name apparently means power, strength, vigor, and virtue. Wow. And the, the other uh, beaver in that study that was not as, as impressive. Second place impressive. stick shaker. Second place was Froda. Uh, Froda's name means clever, learned, and wise. And this is also, like I said, this is related to Frodo. Like Frodo is like a variation of this name that Tolkien used in The Lord of the Rings. That makes sense. Yeah. However, while the real-life biology of the beaver is truly fascinating, what actually first got us interested in this topic was uh, something you came across, Rob, which was the the pattern of deeply off-the-mark illustrations of beavers in medieval and Renaissance manuscripts, just so far off the mark in depicting this animal. You wonder how it happened. Yeah, we got into a little bit and discussed how, you know, we have to take into account that while we do have um, uh, one variety of beavers in North America and the other variety in uh, Eurasia, you know, not everyone would have had direct exposure to it. You have that game of telephone taking place about these species, depending on illustrations and second and third hand accounts. Then there's the added fact that beavers are largely nocturnal. Uh, They live out often in very uh, remote uh, circumstances. So the average even observer may not get to observe them that closely. And then as we'll discuss in this episode even more, there are additional elements of their physiology that may mystify someone who is observing them in the wild or trying to make sense of their their bodies as the, as the, the carcass is processed. Yeah, another thing, though, is that the Eurasian beaver was once hunted near to extinction. Its populations have bounced back significantly since then, uh, since the, the 20th century. But uh, it, it came kind of close for the Eurasian beaver, like uh, the, the hunters really got over on him for a while. Yeah, uh, North American beavers uh, were also in, in bad shape. And two of the main drivers for, for this, one of them was just beaver hats uh, and beaver fur. Um, I'm to understand that the, um, the the beaver hat going out of style helped out a lot, but there's a, another major beaver pr- uh, product, a beaver derived product we're going to discuss in this episode um, that uh, that also threatened these species. Uh, so uh, yeah, these are going to be important, especially when we talk about a particular detail of various bestiaries and illuminated manuscripts that show beavers or alleged beavers. Some of these are very strange beavers. They look more like a deer or a dog or a lion or you name it. But at any rate, the main perplexing detail is that they are depicted chewing off their own testicles whilst being pursued by a human hunter. I thought we should mention and describe a few of these actual illustrations and the manuscripts they come from. So I came across a post about this on the British Library's Medieval Manuscripts blog. I love the British Library's blogs, by the way. They often are a wonderful resource. Uh, But this post is from November 7th, 2012. It's called Beavers on the Run by Nicole Eddy. And it includes a number of illustrations, uh, a couple that we alluded to at the beginning of part one of this series and several that uh, I think we haven't talked about yet, but none of which have we featured in detail. So The author of this blog post says you can usually recognize a beaver in a medieval bestiary 
which seemed at first like a very odd statement because <laughs> most of these drawings look absolutely nothing like the real animal, not even a little. <laughs> but she goes on to explain, you can recognize them because they are always depicted the same way in a characteristic or stereotyped scene, quote, on the run, pursued by a hunter who is frequently blowing a horn and accompanied by hunting dogs. Hmm. And just as you said, Rob, we can add to that image uh, the fact that they are often uh, depicted either discarding or in the middle of biting off their own testicles while in hot pursuit. Several examples. Let's start with one we, we briefly alluded to in part one. So this is a miniature from a Latin bestiary originating in England from the second or third quarter of the 13th century. The manuscript is known as Sloan 3544. So what we see in a miniature with the Latin text all around is a sort of rectangle of red background decorated with these three-leaf clover shapes. And then we have what appears to be some kind of big cat, maybe a mountain lion. Compared to the human and the dog in this drawing, it is about the size of a horse. Yeah. Also, it has a horse's tail. Did you notice that? It has like a hair tail. Yeah, this does not even look like a fish tail. As we mentioned before, some depictions of beavers, they often have almost like a mermaid quality to them. Uh-huh. Of course, beavers do have interesting, unusual tails. They have a, the flat tail, which uh, aids them in swimming, but they also use uh, for a type of signaling known as water slapping, where they slap the surface of the water to make loud sounds. And this is uh, used for social reasons to signal to the uh, to the other beavers around them that maybe a predator or a rival beaver from outside the family group is approaching their territory. I will say this about this uh, this particular quote unquote beaver. The posture here with feet back, rear feet on the ground, front feet elevated, and this tail, as horsey as it looks, it is kind of going down and out, which is at least vaguely reminiscent of the way that beavers will often walk uh, if they're carrying something, you know, mm. with that tail helping them to balance and their front legs are up helping to carry something. That would be fortunate if that was the artist's intention, but I think what's being shown here is a horsehair-style tail, like, flapping in the wind as the beaver runs. If it were not for the, you know, vulgar error, uh, as we'll discuss, regarding the eating of the, the testicles or the biting of the testicles here, um, this is otherwise, I think, a, a, a beautiful image. I like the use of the, like, the red, the, like, the deep crimson behind it. Mm-hmm. Oh, but wait, we didn't get to the animal's head yet. So it's got the <laughs> horse-sized body, horse-looking tail, but with feline paws and an approximately leonine head, like a mountain lion's head. Mm -hmm. But also with a snake neck, it's kind of a dragon. Like the neck is curving around mm -hmm. and it appears to be covered in maybe feathers or scales. And the neck is curving all the way around for the head to reach back and, yes, bite its own testicles. While the beast is in mid-spring, it's leaping through the air and biting while it's aloft. It's, uh, its front paws are off the ground. It is a strange image. Yeah, if you had no background on this, um, you would just think this is a fantastic creature. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, the hunting dog is after it, is, of course, sort of barking, pulling. Maybe is that a leash or I can't quite tell. Uh, but there's a hunter also, a dude standing there looking kind of like a hungover George Washington. And he is blowing an upturned hunter's horn. Yeah. All the eyes in this image look kind of bloodshot, <laughs> which adds an interesting effect to it. 
Okay, next image for us to discuss. This is from a work known as the Rochester Bestiary from England around the year 1230 in a manuscript called Royal 12F. This one is a lot more colorful. Here the hunt takes place on a green hill with a golden sky in the background and trees that look like asparagus. The hunter has <laughs> blonde surfer hair and wears a blue tunic. He really it does. It's kind of surfery, isn't it? It's kind of mm -hmm. Owen Wilson yeah. hair. Yeah. And he's blowing his, uh, his horn. He's carrying either a sword or a club of some kind in the other hand from the horn. The dogs are howling in pursuit. The beaver is, once again, sort of a serpentine lion with the long, scaly neck twisting all the way back around, biting off the genitalia, but with a different face this time. The beaver's face here is kind of sad and porky, like a, like a lion pig muttering, oh, geez, not again. <laughs> Yeah, this is another strange one where the beaver looks more like a camel or perhaps, you know, some variation of prehistoric mammal. Yeah. Now, I want to get into some uh, ones that have more differences. The next one uh, has actually no testicle biting. This is from an herbal medicine manual called Tractatus de Herbis from Salerno, which is in Italy, produced between 1280 and 1310. The manuscript is called Egerton 747. Here, the hunter is a wizard. Isn't that interesting? He's wearing a pointy wizard hat, and he has huge hands, one of which is, like, up in front of his face, almost as if he's marveling at the hand, like, how did my hand get this way? What has become of me? Yeah, this image has a kind of childlike wonder to it, uh, especially when we're describing the beaver. That's right, right. So, yeah, the wizard hunter has gigantic hands bigger than his head. He's got his horn slung around his shoulder. He's about to heave a spear. Interesting. I guess there was spear hunting of beavers, maybe. Um, but he's got a spear, like, cocked back, ready to throw it. And then the hunter, the dogs, and the beaver are all standing in what looks like a field of spinach plants. Like, there are these mm -hmm. green forking plants interspersed all around. I don't know if that's supposed to be the kind of... Uh, vegetation growing in the landscape that has been altered by the proximity of a beaver dam. And then one of the dogs is gigantic <laughs> and the other is not that gigantic. And then the beaver is a horse. And I mean, I mean that it's not like a horse. The beaver is a horse. It's just a horse. Yeah. A kind of shaggy looking horse um, with, I believe, visible testicles. Oh, yeah, not just visible. They're sort of in bold compared to the mm -hmm. rest of the illustration. Do, do, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. They're like filled in a darker color than anything else. Uh, so the beaver horse is not biting them off, but they're just like they're very prominent and they're almost perfectly centered in the illustration. Yeah, maybe the, the dogs got to him before he could uh, in this in this narrative uh, get rid of them. Okay, this next one I thought was really funny. This is from another English bestiary, 12th century, in a manuscript called Stowe 1067. It's not fully colored in, just a line drawing. The hunter looks like he's dancing, kind of. He, he looks, you know, jolly, like he's, mm -hmm. he's moving, he's feeling the rhythm. Uh, and he's blowing his horn and pointing a single finger at the beaver with his one hand. Do you see the pointing hand? I don't know mm -hmm. why that, that was really funny to me. Uh, but the beaver, meanwhile is a dog. It's just fully a dog, but with one major variation, with weird bulbous eye sockets bulging out of his head over the snout. And we were trying to figure out which Star Wars alien this dog looked like. I eventually realized I was sort of thinking it looks like a the dog version of the Zandozan assassin from The Last Starfighter. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. 
And uh, I, I took a, I was like, something was about this was ringing Star Wars for me as well. So I, I, ha- I had the bestiaries, uh, some, a couple of Star Wars bestiaries out anyway for, uh, for the monster fact I'm working on uh, for this week. So I was like, what is it reminding me of? And I think it's reminding me of, the, of Ishi Tib. Uh, this is a strange kind of avian or beaked looking creature that's in the background at Jabba's palace, but has also subsequently been uh, been used in like comics and on the Clone Wars and stuff like that. This was one of those where you showed me an image and I was like, oh, I have seen this before, but I can't remember from where. It's really kind of in the background. But yeah, Ishitib is like in Return of the Jedi. There, I found a shot of him like back sort of behind Luke's head while Luke is pointing a blaster at Jabba. He's not, in, in my opinion, one of the more interesting Jabba's palace aliens. Uh, like I, I didn't have him as a figure which, uh, you know, maybe that's because I didn't find him interesting, or maybe I don't find him interesting because I don't have the connection with the toy. Well, anyway, to get back to the the beaver in this drawing, which, again, is just a dog, it's interesting because he's not biting his testicles here. They're floating in the air behind him as if the, mm-hmm. the alien dog beaver has sort of projectile defecated them in the hunter's direction. You see they're like a floating four-leaf clover in the air. The four-leafed aspect of the testicle is interesting, and I think that will be of note when we get into the actual anatomy of uh, the lower regions of the of the beaver. Now, the examples don't stop there. We could go on naming many more, uh, but I think you get the idea. There was one thing I just wanted to mention further because it's kind of interesting variation, and that's an illustration of a beaver hunt from the Queen Mary Psalter, an early 14th century manuscript uh, called uh, Royal 2B. And in this one, the beaver, again, looks nothing like a beaver, but in a different way. This time, it's it's just a fox. It's, yeah, would you say? It's like a gray fox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks like a fox. The hunter approaches with an axe propped up on his shoulder, and the beaver lies on his back, exposing his belly. Interesting. Apparently, this was another common motif in these uh, uh, medieval illustrations of beavers, in addition to beavers biting off their own testicles. Allegedly, this would happen. They would lie on their back and expose their belly after they had previously bitten them off or after they had been harvested by a previous hunter and the beaver had survived. Uh, so the beaver here is revealing, I haven't got what you're looking for. And then the hunter, in, in this image, the hunter does look kind of annoyed, doesn't he? He's like, oh, what, for real? <laughs> he does. He's got his hand up like, oh, man, chase this critter down in the woods and it doesn't have the goods anymore. But in the medieval lore of beaver hunts, the idea was that the beaver is clever. It knows what the hunter is looking for. And the beaver is thinking, oh, if I can show off that I don't have what the hunter needs, it won't kill me. Yeah. Now, this this is going to be interesting to reflect on in a bit when we talk about beaver aggression. Uh, I I can only imagine that this this idea of the cornered beaver being a docile creature is uh, is, a, is, a, is, a, is an extreme exaggeration and inaccuracy. So this imagery is obviously a lot of fun, but Rob, would you, uh, I, I think it's safe to say, I hope you'll agree that the chomping off, dropping, shooting, projectile pooping of testicles, none of this reflects any biological reality. This is not something beavers actually do or ever actually did. Correct. Yeah, this is, um, as, as we'll discuss in a bit, it's referred to as the vulgar error um, <laughs> at times. Uh, it, it, the error is based on some 
definite biological realities concerning the beaver, uh, but they did not do this. Yeah, this is not something they did. Uh, this is not something I think any animal does. Um, so before we get into exactly why, though, we have to talk about what they were after with all of this. They were after Castorium. The hunters were. The, yes, the hunters were after Castorium, um, a product derived from beavers. I believe we mentioned this briefly in the last episode, but the basic reality here is beavers keep their hide waterproof via oily secretions from their castor glands. Each beaver, male or female, has a pair of these, along with a pair of anal glands. So, so far, castor glands, anal glands, one pair of each. Uh, this alone makes me think back to that, that sort of four cloved uh, testicle that is dropped in one of those uh, those uh, illuminated uh, manuscript details we were discussing. Yeah, that's the that's the uh, the four sack that's being chucked at the hunter. Yeah. Now, I found a great article, a great short but detailed article with illustrations about the glands of the beaver. This is from 1978 by Gerald E. Svensson. Uh, and it's titled Castor and Anal Glands of the Beaver, and it was published in the Journal of Mammalogy. And it's on JSTOR. It's free to access if you really want to go in depth on this and see the, the uh, very helpful illustrations. Uh, I, I definitely recommend it. Uh, but the author here says, quote, these glands liberate odoriferous products that may be used in the construction of scent mounts and in scent communication. This will sort of connect to what we talked about in the previous episode about the territoriality observed in the Eurasian beavers, where a family group would would build a lodge and a dam and it would sort of police the borders of its area to keep rivals out. And one of the things it would do in order to indicate the borders of its area is do scent marking. And often it was observed that uh, along with the stick shaking uh, behavior, when a beaver felt its territory might be being encroached on by another beaver from outside the group, it would engage in additional scent marking. It would start to mark either with anal glands or castorium. Yeah. So both anal and castor glands are in a cavity that the author here describes as being similar to a scrotum and that, quote, testes lie anterior to the glands in the distal region of the inguinal canal. The testes protrude into the gland cavity in sexually mature males, but are separated from the glands by tissue of the terminal end of the inguinal canal and the lining of the gland cavity. Okay, I, I realize that's a lot. Uh, and Joe, for you anyway, I included an illustration from this paper that I think makes a little more sense of this. Uh, this is one of two illustrations that the author provides. And a reminder, we're very much in the cloaca here. Right, so in the, the, the back of the beaver, sort of between the tail and the hind legs, we have, uh, we have the gland cavity, and it contains these different uh, organs, the anal gland and the castor gland. Yes. Now, he points out that anal glands are posterior to the castor glands, and each gland opens independently via ducts. So the, ca the castor glands, however, don't open directly to the outside. Instead, they hook up to the urethra and open into the beaver's cloaca. Um, however, I imagine this will be key to what we're discussing here. Quote, contraction of the muscle sheath also forces the, the papillary end of the anal gland to protrude from the cloaca. Um, I do not think the same is true of the castor glands proper, but uh, again, I'm thinking of some of the, basically getting back to this idea of 
glands, something like testicles, uh, that, or that could be seen as testicles emerging from the cloaca of the beaver, and then it's not there again, you know, um, a mm. common feature of these illustrations. Interesting. Though these, if I'm understanding everything correctly, these would be the anal glands, not the, ca- the castor glands. But the illustrator doesn't understand it's either one. They think they're seeing gonads and that, like, they're there again and then they're gone. Right. Now, as for the castorium itself, I've seen it described as butter-like. Um, Svensson describes it as yellowish, but then it turns brown when exposed to air and sunlight. Um, he shares that urine washes the castor out in a, quote-unquote, composite mixture that has a pungent odor. He writes that the secretions from both pairs of glands, uh, quote, can be involved in scent mound construction, but that the method of producing these secretions differs based on what we've just uh, discussed. So anal gland secretions are rubbed on something. Um, they're expressed, and then the beaver, you know, gets to rubbing on the, 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 the rock or the, 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 the tree trunk, whatever, while castorium is essentially urinated out. Mm. So beavers use castorium to mark territory and to waterproof their fur. But since ancient times, humans have found other uses for the substance. Uh, to harvest it, it can be milked from a live animal, apparently. I've, I've read that they frequently expel it when handled. Uh, though, again, huge caveat here, don't go trying to handle beavers. Um, I'm not sure under what circumstances it is even recommended to do this, but leave it to the professionals. Uh, professional beaver, beaver handlers, um, if they exist, are the ones that need to be doing this. Uh, most of what we're talking about here, especially with these uh, illustrations and historical collection of castorium, though, involves, of course, killing the beaver, and this requires the glands to be removed uh, post-mortem and then smoked for preservation. Joe, I've included a photo. You can find lots of photos of castorium that has been dried or smoked. Um, and it essentially looks like some sort, like you might imagine, some sort of like um, like dried up uh, gland, some sort of like, um, um, uh, you know, mummified scrotum sort of idea here. You ever like uh, drop a fingerling potato while you're preparing food and it rolls <laughs> under the cabinet and you, you don't realize it's there and then you find it a few months later when you're cleaning and it's all shriveled up into, yes, like a mummy of a, of a potato? That's what it looks like. Yes. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Now, getting into this idea of the alleged testicle drop, um, this has been around for quite a while, and you find uh, you find mention of it in the works of uh, Pliny the Elder uh, from uh, the Natural History. Uh, where of course, we're always turning to Pliny to see what he had to, to say, and this is what he had to say uh, in the Natural History. This is the Bostic translation. Quote, The beavers of Yuxin, when they are closely pressed by danger, themselves cut off the same part, as they know that it is for this they are pursued. This substance is called castorium by the physicians. In addition to this, the bite of this animal is terrible. With its teeth it can cut down trees on the banks of rivers, just as though with a knife. If they seize a man by any part of his body, they will never loose their hold until his bones are broken and crackle under their teeth. The tail is like that of a fish. In other parts of the body they resemble the otter, they are both of them aquatic animals, and both have hair softer than down. I love the description of the ferociousness here. Uh, it's sort of describing like the, the snapping turtle reputation. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, it won't, won't let go until lightning strikes. It, if, if you make a beaver mad, it's going to bite until your bones are broken. And basically, it's crunching on them like cereal. Yeah. <laughs> and this is an idea that I think for many of us might seem comical because we don't think of the beaver as being aggressive. And I, you know, as we discussed in the last episode, beavers, certainly when they're dealing with other beavers, they have a number of safeguards in place to prevent 
like actual combat from occurring unless necessary. Um, so you might be wondering, well, is, is there anything to is this just Pliny uh, getting it wrong or are beavers truly this ferocious? Well, beaver attacks on humans are rare, but they are not unknown. Uh, rabies can, of course, play a role, uh, but it's not always a factor in, in these rare instances. Uh, we might laugh at Pliny's description, but beavers are, of course, wild animals. They should be respected and uh, they can be put into situations where uh, they th- then violently defend themselves. There has been at least one account of a fatal attack on a human in the last century. And I believe in that case, it was a situation where um, they were bit by the beaver and then bled to death. Mm. Now, there is a wonderful CBC radio interview out there, if you haven't heard it, uh, from the early 90s. And then I, I'm not sure the date is known, but it was rebroadcast in, I think, 97. And that's the version that is archived with CBC Radio. It's apparently one of the most uh, requested uh, recordings from the CBC Radio archive. Uh, if you look for it, you can find it out there. Uh, it is action-packed. Uh, it is a little bit funny, and it's, but it's also not for the weak of heart. This interview is riveting. A man describes, uh, he, I think he says he's trying to drive across a bridge in his truck mm-hmm. when the, during a heavy downpour. Uh, or maybe right after one, and the bridge is sort of flooded. There's uh, uh, some water standing between the concrete barriers on the sides of the bridge, and it appears that a beaver has taken up residence on the bridge. It's sort of swimming back and forth in the water. The man gets out of his truck because he is afraid he has accidentally hit the beaver with his truck, and when he gets out, the beaver angrily latches onto his leg and proceeds to attack him multiple times. He sustains... uh, it seems not life-threatening necessarily, but pretty serious-sounding injuries. Like the beaver bites, and it bites hard. Yeah, like bites him like 11 times, and he's just fighting it off, trying to get back in his truck and drive off. I think he has to hit it with a propane tank at some point. And yeah, there's a, it's, a, it's a violent account, though I have to stress that the the man telling the tale— um, he has a lot of sympathy for the beaver, and at the oh, end yeah. of it, he's he's like, I, you know, it's my fault. I, I'm the one. Who, I thought I hit it, and I should never have gotten out of the car. It was just, it was just out of the truck. It was just defending itself. But it really drives home that yes, if the beaver is cornered, the beaver can be ferocious. Uh, those teeth can dig into you, and you can easily see how in another situation, if the beaver had got him in just a few different places, uh, he could have easily bled to death before he was able to drive himself to the hospital. I also like how the individual in this story, he's quick to add, it's like, I, I've been bit by just about every animal out there, but I'd never been bit, or I've been attacked by just about every animal out yeah. there. Been attacked by a wolverine, <laughs> uh, one imagines a moose, but um, but never a beaver. Yeah, it's, but I, I am, like you said, impressed by, he holds no malice for the beaver, even after uh, even after the attack. He, I think he just keeps saying uh, he was on defense. Yeah. <laughs> So, so definitely seek that out if you if uh, you're interested. But back to the the Pliny uh, document here. One of the notes on this text points out that Pliny derived this description from the physician uh, Sextius, and uh, the, the the text goes on to remark on the vulgar error here um, and mentions the work of the the French naturalist uh, Cuvier. Quote: Cuvier remarks that when the gland becomes distended with this secretion, the animal may probably get rid of it by rubbing the part against a stone or tree, and in this way leave the castor for the hunters, thus giving rise to the vulgar error. Now, this is interesting because going back to what we just discussed, it discussed, discussed it, 
Sorry, it's easy to get the two confused here. What we're talking about here, what they're rubbing would be the anal gland secretions, not the castor. Um, but still, you can imagine the situation where you'd have something distended from the lower uh, end of the beaver, something that may look from a pair of glands that may look like testicles. Here's this beaver going up, rubbing itself against um, a stone or, a, or a, a piece of a tree branch or something. And then, oh, lo and behold, whatever was protruding is gone. This could be the thing that, quote, gives rise to the vulgar error. Yep, that does make sense. And it connects again to the idea of the, the scent markings being uh, territorial boundaries in nature, you know, trying to uh, ward off encroachments by other beavers often. Uh, so it, it makes a lot of sense that, say, if a hunter is coming into a beaver's family group territory, the hunter might see it marking. Now, Pliny also mentions the beaver again in the natural history when discussing the sea cow, which he says has a similar level of intelligence and a similar uh, alleged defense capability. Quote, and this is talking about the sea cow, it vomits forth its gall, which is useful for many purposes in medicine. Also the rennet, which serves as a remedy in epilepsy, for it is well aware that it is hunted for these substances. Theophrastus informs us that lizards also cast their skins like the serpent and instantly devour them, thus depriving us of a powerful remedy for ep epilepsy. He says, too, that the bite of the lizard is fatal in Greece, but harmless in Italy. Um, okay. Now, <laughs> uh, there is some merit to what Pliny is saying here, the, um, generally, because certain creatures are thought to leave behind parts of their body or vomit something as a distractor for predators. We also know very well that not just humans, but animal predators sometimes target specific organs of their prey. But what he's reporting about the beaver here specifically is not true. Um, but I, I also find this interesting, this is a tangent, the idea that the lizard eats it, its skin after it sheds it to spite us, to be like, nope, this you're not getting your hands on my, my sweet skin. When, I mean, in reality, we know that many lizards, including uh, my, my son's gecko, consumes its own sheddings because, like, you're not going to waste that good stuff. Of course not. Yeah, nature is full of disgusting efficiencies. Uh, but to add a little bit to what you said a minute ago, it is absolutely true that, there, yeah, there are many animals that will uh, self-amputate when threatened by a predator or under various uh, stressful situations. This is a, a strategy known as autotomy, A-U-T-O-T-O-M-Y, mm -hmm. uh, comes from the Greek for uh, for self cutting or self-severing. Uh, and yeah, this uh, is, uh, you can often see it like in lizards where, yes, if a predator, say, grabs hold of their tail, the lizard will just release the tail from their body. The predator can have it, uh, which has a double effect that, uh, that's helpful for the lizard's survival. For one thing, if it is grabbed by the tail and then releases the tail, it has now escaped the grasp of the predator. But the other thing is by giving the predator a sort of consolation prize. It's almost like compromising with them. It's like, well, you can have this much, but you can't have my whole life. Mm. Now, it's also worth noting that I think, I mean, all the examples of, uh, of this that come to mind are essentially ejections, releases. They do not involve like active severing of, of a creature's own body with its teeth or its claws or that sort of thing. Well, yeah, that's a good question. I, uh, all of the ones I can think of having read of, uh, read about before, yeah, just seem to be reject uh, severings, often of like a tail or a leg or something or a claw. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, th that is a good question. Are there cases where the 
animal has to work on its own autonomy, where it essentially must do the severing itself with its teeth or or claws or other something, uh, something like that. Yeah. So if the beaver were to sever its own testicles, it would be a really an alarming behavioral development. Um, I, I can't imagine a situation where this where a creature would develop it, like evolve to have this as an as an actual um, feature of like dropping their testicles, like ejecting them. Because I, you know, even examples like certain scorpions that eject part of their own tail and in doing so eject their anus and then can no longer poop, as we've discussed, and then just kind of swell up with poop for the rest of their lives. Uh, if if memory serves, they can still reproduce. They're not giving up reproduction, that vital act of, uh, of, of any species, in order to protect itself. I did think of a possible counterexample. I uh, wish I had read up on this deeply before we started recording, but I believe there are cases where crabs will practice autonomy, and that will involve the, like, cutting or pulling of the autonomized uh, claw with the other claw. So that is like active, like the alleged beaver testicle biting. Ah, we'll leave it to crabs to to do it that way. Yeah. Maybe we'll have to come back to that in, in listener mail or something. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better 
because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, now coming back to Castorium, uh, the origins of human uses for uh, this uh, substance are, of course, lost to time. They emerged from somewhere in the vast period of time during which our ancestors determined how best to process and use an animal's body for resources that range from, like, the really practical, like, meat and materials to things that are more cultural, like decorations and adornments, and also that often murky area of medicinal and magical properties uh, in a given substance. Uh, but still, we have we have some early sources to consider. Now, apparently, the the ancient archaeological evidence of castorium usage by humans takes us back a good six thousand years. I was looking at a paper titled "Ancient Throwing Dart Reveals First Archaeological Evidence of Castorium," published in the Journal of Archaeological Science Reports. This was in June of 2021 by Helwig et al. And basically, this throwing dart in particular was found in the Yukon Territory. And it featured a red-orange residue that, upon analysis, contained the or, uh, various organic uh, ingredients and, and uh, materials that matched up with beaver castorium. Mm. The authors point out that the substance was seemingly used to toughen wood by ancient hunters, though baiting and medicinal uses among later First Nations people were also recorded. Uh, the Talton people, in particular, were said to use it on the heated wood of their bows and kept some on their person in a small container of like wood or horn or bone. So uh, it sounds like it was something that was probably used to like to maintain your weapons, to maintain your hunting implements. Hmm. That's a kind of oily treatment for the wood. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, it, this to a certain extent, I guess, kind of reminds one of how the, the beavers use it to, to help uh, and use that special cl- uh, claw comb of theirs to cl- comb it into their, their fur in addition to using it to, to uh, mark their scent. Mm-hmm. But in the fur, it's, uh, I believe, it's supposed to have some waterproofing purposes. Yeah, yeah. Now, Sarah Lohman, in a 2017 article for Mental Floss, points, uh, uh, it's a nice overview that points to a number of different uh, additional um, alleged uses for, uh, for, uh, for a castorium. For instance, I believe in, in Roman times, uh, it was thought that it could, you could use like a smoke inhalation based, uh, version of it for, um, as an abortive medicine. 12th century mystic, uh, Hildegard von Bingen wrote that it could be powdered and put into a wine to reduce fever. And then in colonial America, it was used for all sorts of stuff. It was used as both a means of staving off sleep, you know, sort of like your your trucker speed, I guess. But it was also used to encourage sleep, you know, having a little insomnia. Well, have right. some castorium. It was used as a kind of brain booster. You know, you're feeling like you need to up your game. Well, you can't just grab some, um, some, some pills, some brain booster pills at the grocery store. You need to go get yourself some castorium from the local <laughs> apothecary. They must have gotten really smart. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was used to treat colic, to treat gout, and to treat toothaches and earaches. Now, I got 
interested in the idea of the use of castorium allegedly to treat pain uh, because of something I read. Unfortunately, I was not able to find a, a, a very clear answer on this. But what I read was that uh, I was looking at a book called uh, Aspirin and the Salicylates by K.D. Rainsford, published in 2013. Quote, salicylates have also been identified in beaver castor, i.e. of scent glands, from where it is secreted instead of the uh, via the usual urinary route. The salicylates are probably uh, metabolic transformation products from vegetable sources in the diet of the beaver. So that kind of interested me because salicylates are related to the active ingredient in aspirin, uh, mm. aspirin is, of course, uh, it's a non-steroidal uh, anti-inflammatory drug often used to uh, reduce fever and, and treat pain, inflammation. And this active ingredient in aspirin, acetyl salicylic acid, is derived from a precursor found in the bark of the willow tree, which, of course, is something that beavers tend to chew and eat a lot of. Hmm. So this chemical relationship with the active ingredient in uh, in a common non-steroidal anti-inflammatory and, and pain reliever uh, made me wonder if there could be some kind of uh, connection there. Like maybe this downstream animal product uh, that's derived from this original plant molecule, uh, I, I wondered if that could be playing a role in castorium actually having an anti-inflammatory effect or treating pain, but I could not find anything solid to back up that connection. So uh, I, I don't know if there's actually anything to that, but my, my curiosity is raised here. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, now, outside of alleged medicinal properties, it also has a long history of being used um, as a, uh, like a, just for its scent and as a flavor enhancer. Uh, mm -hmm. Lohman notes, as others have noted in these other sources we've looked at, uh, that uh, castorium once processed, you know, smoked or, or derived into a tincture, uh, it can be used to enhance flavors, particularly to enhance flavors of raspberry and strawberry, uh, to replicate a kind of vanilla flavor. And it's also been used to give perfumes a sort of leathery odor. And I guess all of this shouldn't be too surprising, again, realizing that the compounds in castorium are ultimately derived from leaves and tree bark. Uh, so it shouldn't be completely shocking. Mm -hmm. Now, it's still technically an FDA-approved natural flavoring in the United States, but it's rarely used um, and was far more commonly used as a, as a flavor enhancer in, uh, in the early 20th century. Now, you've probably, if you've looked around at anything about this, you may have come across this. There is apparently a Swedish spirit called Beverhut that uses uh, castorium, translated as beaver shout. Um, some adventurous um, imbibers have sought it out. Uh, you'll find a number of um, essentially, I guess, spirit and alcohol bloggers out there talking about their experiences with it or doing videos. Some of these with kind of crude titles. Uh, but I found a, a really nice one uh, on a blog uh, uh, from a, an individual named Dolly Jorgensen uh, at dolly.jorgensenweb.net, um, who has like a, a very nice historically driven post on the subject that is, again, far classier than what I was seeing in other places online. I just want to read a quick quote from Dolly Jorgensen about trying out Beaver Shout. Quote, the first flavor was similar to oak-cured whiskey, but then the musk comes out. 
It's a hard-to-describe taste, but I imagine that it's what traditional male musky cologne would taste like. It was not particularly strong, however, so it seemed pleasant enough to consume most of the shot. An hour later, however, I had a different opinion, as the castorium scent started to seep out through my skin, literally. My pores started to extrude the musky smell. Okay, I mean, that's a commercial, basically. <laughs> so I, I, I thought that was telling because uh, the, the way um, the author describes it here, it is, it's probably, or at least in this case, uh, and I guess it depends on who's making the, the, the liquor and so forth, but uh, it sounds like it's more tolerable than you might imagine, but there being this kind of like after effect to consuming it. If any adventurous sorts out there listening to this episode have experience with Beaver Shout, uh, do write in. We would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your uh, impression of this. You know, this reminds me of the time we talked about the liquor that had a human toe in it, and then we heard mm -hmm. from multiple listeners who said they drank it. Yeah, yeah. There was another blog post that I was looking at where the individual was like, hey, it's kind of a hobby of mine to find various alcohols that have something organic in them, something, some like part, uh, and then try it out. And you see, see this in different cultures, like the idea of like some sort of alcohol and it has like, I don't know, a snake in it, a scorpion in it, that sort of thing. Um, but in this case, uh, the, uh, the uh, castor glands of a beaver are used to create a unique spirit. I also looked around, I was like, maybe somebody's making a cocktail with this. Maybe there's a beaver shout cocktail out there. Uh, I could not find one. So if, <laughs> if mixologists out there are figuring out a way to sort of tame the flavor of beaver shout and you know, like sort of manipulate it into a more refined concoction, I have not found evidence of it. Of it. I went to Imbibe magazine uh, and, and looked around for castorium and they, nothing was coming up. Uh, and that's the one place I would expect like some professional uh, mixologist out there has has whipped this up you know just on just to, as a challenge but i saw no evidence of it maybe in sweden maybe maybe it's like a special thing you need to like look to swedish uh, high-end bars to find this maybe maybe you got to ask beer get where to find it yeah all right. Well, I believe we're going to close out our two-parter on the beaver here. Uh, but this was a fun one. This is one that uh, initially I was thinking we would discuss these some of these images of the beaver in an episode that looked at other inaccurate depictions of animals from various bestiaries. And then it quickly became obvious that this was an entire episode and then that it was actually uh, a, a part one and a part two. Uh, I, I have so much more respect and admiration for the, the weird and wonderful beaver now. How can you not? I mean, if you don't, they'll shake a stick at you. Yeah, yeah. All right, we're going to go and close it out here. But we'd love to hear from everyone out there. If you have thoughts, experiences uh, concerning the beaver, uh, write in. Uh, if you want to check out other episodes we've done in the past, we've covered a lot of uh, curious animals over the years, kind of com composing our own bestiary in many respects on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast. Uh, you can find core episodes of that on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Mondays, we do Lister Mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form artifact or monster fact. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird movie on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.